Welcome to the very first episode of Share Your Story series. This is a podcast-like experience where we get to know, explore humanity one heart at a time. I'm your host, Jenny Diltz, and I'm the founder of Grieving Coach. Before we begin, I wanted to share a little bit about the story behind this series. I've been connecting with some amazing people lately, and as I've been meeting with them, I've learned so much from them. I've been wanting to get back into the reimagined community as a collaborator. And I've also been interviewing as a guest on various podcast shows. Then I had a lightning bolt inspiration thought and the surge of creativity came in the idea to combine the two in a series of events with Reimagine where I could be the host and invite the people I've been meeting to share their stories. So today I'm excited to be talking with Dave Roberts who has been a national and local workshop presenter on grief and loss and also a keynote speaker. His commitment to helping others navigate grief is a result of the challenges that he experienced following the death of his 18-year-old daughter, Janine, in March of 2003 due to cancer. Dave, I'm so happy to have you with us. Thank you, Jenny. I'm glad to be here. This is exciting. Tell us about Janine. How much time do we have? We have about 45 minutes. We got 45 minutes, okay. Um, well, Janine was the second, was a middle child. I had three children. She was the middle of three children. She has an older brother and a younger brother. She was born um, in April of 1984. Um, and I remember after she was born, I told my wife, Sherry, I said, you know, it would be great if we could have a little girl. You know, I always wanted to be like a daddy's little girl and have a little girl to kind of dote on. And when she when she was born, I I was jumping up and down in the delivery room just just with joy. And the, the doctor looked at me and I kept saying, "It's a girl! It's a girl! It's a girl! It's a girl!" And the doctor said, Did, "I think your husband's a little bit excited." I told my wife, "I said, yeah, I was just a tad excited." Uh, Janine was a happy, very happy child. Um, she always had she had a smile that would light up a room. And she's, you know, from childhood right until, you know, the time of, the time of her death. Um, she loved people. Um, she loved to socialize. She was, a, we called her a little social butterfly. Um, she, as she got older, she walked her own, very own unique path. She was a, very much of a free-spirited young lady. Uh, she defied conventional wisdom. She didn't subscribe to conventional wisdom, which is one of the lessons that she taught me is that conventional wisdom can be highly overrated. Um, she was an animal lover. Uh, she worked at one of our local farms dealing with animals with disability, and she was able to make just unique and very strong connections with that, with those animals. It was like almost like she could see into their soul, literally. Um, she did not take a traditional path in school. Um, she had the needs, the needs that she had as a, you know, for education kind of clashed with the general mission of, of the school district that she was in. And, and, you know, we tried to work with the school district to do some individualized programming with her to meet her, her interest in, in, her, in, in her love of animals and animal caretaking and other things, but they they wouldn't work with us. And then it became apparent that the staying in school, you know, for the duration of high school was not really gonna be an option for her. So uh, much to the 
consternation initially of, of my wife. We, I, I signed the paperwork allowing her to withdraw from high school and get her GED. And it's certainly when she was 16. So Jen, is what is the way circumstances work, you know, it's like the universe kind of opened up that opportunity because the way it worked, it was, you know, it, and given the fact that um, she, you know, unbeknownst to us that she only had two years of life remaining, um, it worked out for her taking the path that she did. She got her GED, she became a certified nurse's aide and then worked with her, her, um, her mother as a nurse in a local nursing home. Fast forwarding, um, in September of, I think, two, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to think of the timeline here. Um, yeah, just after her 17th birthday, um, she came in, she came in with the love of her life. Um, and she had been through, you know, you know, and a, a love of her life came in and she had called me and said, dad, I got to talk to you. So she, she came in with her boyfriend and opened the door and Janine, there was nothing subtle about her. She walked in and said, dad, I'm pregnant. Okay. So that's the first thing that she said to me. Now, normally as a father whose daughter got pregnant at 17, normally any father would probably be could be, many would be ranting and raving and angry. How could you do this? I didn't, it was, a, I just, I said, okay. I said, do you guys have a plan? And we went, we went through everything. He goes, yeah, we got a plan. I said, okay, you know where to find me if you need me. Um, her, her significant other had a very, uh, very defined sense of responsibility beyond his years. Uh, he was a little older than Janine, but his sense of responsibility was incredible. And I knew he would take good care of her. So, in, earlier in her pregnancy, she hurt her foot. It was a freak accident. Um, we tried, they tried a walking boot. They tried, um, you know, foot elevation, rest, everything but her foot. The bottom of her foot continued to, to grow. And a, a lot of us, because she was pregnant, we thought it was edema or swelling, just, you know, normal, a normal reaction. Uh, you know, from the pregnancy, but for her about a month before her daughter was born, um, and I'm leaving the names out of this, I only because her father and family are very private, so I'm just going to just speak generally, um, and also maintain their privacy as well too. Um, so they tried everything. About a month before her daughter and my first grandchild were born, they wanted to. Um, do an MRI and she said no not until after my granddaughter was born was after our, after her child was born so in early May her daughter was born they did an MRI um, they found a, a, a undefined eight centimeter mass at the bottom of her foot they did a subsequent biopsy about two weeks later and they found they thought it was highly suggestive of cancer the diagnosis was confirmed on May 26, which was, was the weekend before Memorial Day. Um, she had been living on her own with her significant other. They opted and we had offered, they moved in with us after Brianna was born. Um, and then, you know, after, after Janine's death, which I'll, I'll get to in a second, after Janine's death, um, they, you know, her significant other and granddaughter stayed with us for four years. And then 
they they moved. Um, you know, he has since remarried, and um, but we still still see them regularly, and we see our our granddaughter regularly, and it's a good relationship. So we went to it was a it was a diagnosis. It was rhabdomyelitis rhabdomyosarcoma, which in in English in layman's terms is a connective muscle tissue cancer. Um, we went to Dana-Farber Institute in, in, in Boston. And because they are one of the foremost in the United States, they are one of the foremost cancer centers and research centers for, for pediatric sarcoma. We had the consult, they looked over all of her tests. They basically said in a five minute consult, um, your daughter has a stage four cancer with bone marrow and, and lip node involvement. There is absolutely, then um, they basically said there's no cure for the type of cancer that she has. The only hope is aggressive chemotherapy to keep it in remission until we could find a cure. What I heard and what my daughter heard was unless there's a miracle cure, she's going to die. Okay, so I went from being the joys of a grandfather in the middle of all of this, I had just had my degree a week before her diagnosis on May 19, 2002, I, um, I completed my studies for my master's in social work. So I had all of this. I, had, I was excited about my master's. I was excited about being a grandchild. All of a sudden, now I found myself as a parent, as a parent caregiver to a child with a terminal illness. And um, so she opted to do her chemotherapy. We didn't stay in Boston. She did chemotherapy in, in Utica. Um, essentially, um, you know, she did eight rounds of chemotherapy. Uh, the first six, six rounds put it in 80% remission. And as you know, with cancer, it's either 100% or nothing. Um, her cancer eventually remetastasized in early 2003. Um, and she eventually, she eventually passed with hospice care at our at our home on March first, two thousand and three. So that is that's everything that that kind of led up to that. Um, and that is essentially the story of Janine's life and her death, and as it turns out, her, her eternal life, which is the other part of the story as well. So, thank you for sharing that with us. You're what welcome. was it? What was it like for you to have all of those emotions, the the joy, the excitement, the celebration, and the death and the grief and the sadness? How did you handle all of that? Um, at times, it was a very um, you know very uncertain prospect. I mean, I, I was I'd been a therapist for probably you know, for thirty years in a variety of different capacities, and I can tell you, being a therapist working with individuals who had their own set of, of challenges, um, didn't even remotely prepare me. The work that I did with them didn't even remotely prepare me for the path that I was walking. Because there's nothing, there's no book, there's nothing, any other prior experience that can prepare you for losing a child. Um, it, is, I, it is a parent's worst nightmare. And essentially, I, I had, I, 47 years old, I was faced with and I was faced with learning how to walk all over again in a world that became very terrifying and uncertain to me. Um, as I look back on the early years now, I look at joy and sadness and um, anger 
in bewilderment, confusion, all of these are emotions that kind of make up a very kind of yin and yang mosaic of the path that we walk. And I, I, it was difficult for me to embrace, especially the negative part of negative part of that. I had wanted an early grief, my life to be the way it was. I mean, I had found a bereaved parent support group. My wife and I found a bereaved parent support group about six months after Janine died. And to tell you what it was like in early grief for me, first of all, the first year, the second year is in many cases for many, many individuals worse than the first year because the first year is kind of surreal. There's shock. And then the second year, it's like one year and one day after. Um, I, I, the reality hit in that said, this is my life moving forward. There's not going to be any do-overs. God or the, or the, the founder, the uh, guardian of the universe isn't going to come down and say, we made a mistake. Here's your life back. None of that was going to happen. Um, and at about the two-year mark after dealing with and trying to work through the pain and work through the anger, work through the sadness, I just said, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not going to go to any more support groups. I don't want to be a bereaved parent anymore. I'm done. I want my life back. Shortly after I made that decision, I became more miserable because I cut myself off from the support that was going to help me eventually get through. And what I was saying is that I was denying my existence as a parent who lost a child. I was denying that. And, and then once I began to realize that I couldn't deny it, um, I began to acknowledge, okay, that this is the path that I'm going to be walking for the rest of my life. And now, how do I want to do that? How do I wish to do that? Do I want to walk? Do I want to start taking steps to, to live a purposeful life? Or do I want to continue to wallow in the muck of my grief and with no movement? So I opted to move forward and try to live a life of purpose and honor of and with my daughter uh, to try to help those who were those who are bereaved as bereaved parents or, or who have experienced any type of catastrophic loss, I was going to do the, my best to share my experience moving forward to help them. And in the process, it inspired me as well, too, because I became witness to many stories. And when somebody takes you into, and you know this, gentlemen, somebody takes you into their into their circle and they share their most intimate stories of life and of death what they are saying is they are trusting you to be the caretaker of that story every story that i i've witnessed i carry with me in some way shape or form and that continues to inspire me and craft my grief journey going forward eventually taking those small steps and saying okay i am am ready to live my a life of purpose other people started coming into my circle at times when I needed them the most, whether they were spiritual healers, whether they were other, you know, other individuals who had experienced who, who were you know, longer in grief than me, people that has helped me um, you know, work through my grief. Every person that came into my life came in at a particular time that I needed them. So once I said, I am ready to move forward, the universe kind of conspired to give me every, everything I needed to do that. Today, 18 years later, I can say that I have accepted what has happened. And acceptance doesn't mean I've gotten over it. It just means that I have accepted that I am going to live the rest of my life as a parent who's experienced the death of a child. And I'm going to make the most of the time that I have left 
spite of the cards that were dealt to me. And I did that. One of the things that was helpful was embracing perspectives that not, not necessarily were science-based because my background was in psychology, which was very science-based. But I embraced a, a variety of different perspectives, um, spiritual perspectives. Um, and, you know, that helped me understand that my daughter is still going to be a part of my life. She's still my daughter. And that that bond with her is going to be eternal. Um, and and also the work that I did with my daughter embracing, you know, by accepting the fact that, okay, we have a relationship now, but it's different. It's in spirit. That also helped me to do some ancestral healing with, with my father and my mother. Where, where I had unresolved issues with them during childhood. So the work that I did with Janine helped me look at my past and make some peace with that as well. So I was able to make peace with my past, kind of create my, my present and look at a future with hope, but, un, but with understanding that the sadness of grief was always gonna be with me in some way, shape or form, and that our grief journeys are circular and they're not linear. You know, it's just depending on I mean, is that we can experience the sadness of, of, of grief at any time, depending on the circumstances, no matter how long it's been. So I hope that answered your question. That was amazing, yes. And it answered not only that specific question, but it, it gave more depth and breadth to the experience, to the story, to the full picture mm -hmm. of what it's like to it gave like a, a big picture view of the grief mm -hmm. journey. Mm -hmm. And I and also I got to say something else, if I may, and this will be just very quickly, if I may. The of other course. thing that had happened, and this is kind of the universe conspiring to meet a need that I didn't know I had. And um, what happened is that when I had gotten my, my master's degree, my dream prior to Janine's illness was to do some, do some private practice, continue to work full-time, do some part-time private practice, continue to work full-time and teach part-time. So there was a point in Janine's cancer during the summer of her illness where uh, chemo was having a positive effect. And, you know, she was, she had some energy and, you know, she had, you know, she had encouraged me. And the other thing with that is I stayed out of work for three months. I mean, that's what I tell, today I tell people, you know, sometimes life gets in the way of what you want to do, but when life life calls, you got to answer the call of life. So I had applied for a job, local jobs, teaching jobs, and Utica College, which happens to be my alma mater, called me during the summer, I think it was of 2002, and they offered me a teaching position. I started the job, and I signed the contract, and I started my teaching at Utica College at January 2003. Two, two and a half, but two, eh, probably about... Um, six weeks before my daughter died. And I couldn't say no to the contract. So after my daughter's death, um, you know, the staff and the community there were very, very supportive. Um, and when I told, initially told my first group of students about it, they were so supportive and just so welcoming and so, so loving, you know, they extended a lot of love to me. And that continued with each class. Anytime I got a smile from a student, it was it, it would brighten my day and it would help me move one step more forward in, in my grief. That entire community in early grief solidified the will that I had to survive. And I kept taking baby steps and I fed off of their energy. 
and I, I and they loved me when I had difficulty loving myself, and um, be, you know, so in today and whenever and I and I teach a death dying and bereavement course, and my story is very much a part of that because I believe that when you're teaching a course as intimate as death dying and bereavement, they don't need to know professional background, but they need to know personal background. And I never, and people I believe who get into the field of, of, of thanatology or the study of death, dying, and breathing, they'll do so because they wake up one day and say, I want to study death. It's usually something personally that happens that causes a shift in their perspective and allows them to explore that, that field a little further. That's what happened with me. And, but my students are a big part of my community. I regularly tell them that. Um, if it wasn't for them, I don't know. In early grief, I don't know where I would have been because they gave me the, they inspired me to continue to go on and they still do. So I mean, they're going to have to drag me probably or wheel me out or something when, when I'm in my 90s, you know, if I continue to teach. So, you know, then so they're going to have to just, just I just told the department as they're just tell me when I'm done, you know, just wheel me out. Tell me when you have no more use for me. I'm going to stay here until you tell me I can't. So. So that's the other part of the story as well, too. And I had, I had to throw some kudos out to my students as well, too. In the, in the Utica College community. Yeah, that's one thing that really struck is when we, um, when we're ready to move forward, the universe provides. They do, yeah. And I see that very, very much in your story. And intention is a very powerful, is very powerful. If we state our intent that, okay, I'm ready to, to move on or move through and I'm ready to embrace, to embrace or to embark on another chapter in my life. It's after loss, then the universe provides what you need. The biggest, the hard, the most, the challenge, most challenging part, and I struggle with this occasionally, is trusting that. Because sometimes you want to say, come on, universe, make up your mind. I, I'm ready now. Just, But the universe will provide in its own time and not in our time. And when it does, you just have to be aware. Yeah, very true. Um, so as you have collected stories and been entrusted with other people's stories, how has that affected you in your grief journey? Um, one, I feel humbled and honored to be able to be present to some of to some very intimate, detailed, and and heart wrenching stories. Um, I've also learned that there are some individuals that have had it worse than me, um, because I've talked to parents who have experienced multiple deaths of a child, multiple losses, um, and you know, that in and of itself creates some, some very different set of circumstances. But what what is, and I've had people ask me, well, how can you listen to stories of grief all day? I said, I mean, I mean, I said, you know, I said, it's like I get an opportunity to sit with some of the most resilient, um, bright, creative and determined individuals. And they're willing to share their, their most intimate stories with me. That is a gift that inspires me. I learn from those stories. I learn, you know, I, I pick up particular things and we you know we learn from each other. And I think the fact that 
that I, that I, I'm, I'm in that position. I, I, I am put in that position. Or I put myself in that position, and they trust me with that. It's to me the ultimate gift, and that always inspires me. I mean, there are days I, yeah, I get tired. There are days that I need to take some time for myself, but I do that. But it, it's just because I need to take time for myself. And it, and it, it, when you're attending to the energy of somebody else's grief, it can be tiring. But at the same time, it's a good kind of tired. You know, because it's it's like I, I've heard, I remember in one one of the earliest instances of grief, I was asked by our local hospice to talk to a, to a mother whose son had the whose son was 12 years old had the same type of diagnosis and cancer, and they had given up. To, she, you know, she they were just going to do palliative care because she had tried every treatment option. I remember sitting down with her. And her story so much, you know, we, we sat down and we talked. And uh, I went home and I took a nap after that. It was draining, but it was also very inspiring because you just, you know, watching and, and you watching her and seeing the love that she had for her, for her child and was still going to have for her child. That, it, it, it's some possibility that, that, that almost increased the love I had for for, for her child in the process, I never met him, and also the love for my child. And I think what happens is that when we we emanate love, when we share, when we either share or witness somebody's story, we become love. You know, we become that emotion. Um, if we can learn to, for, you know, if we can learn to forgive ourselves for any, you know, anything that we thought we thought we could have done done more to save our loved ones if we can learn to forgive ourselves and maybe in the process forgive others um which is a tall order in and of itself but if we can even practice let's say self-forgiveness then we can become and we embrace that we can become forgiveness to somebody else we can embody that quality and that comes out um as we we share and we witness our own stories and I got to quote one thing with forgiveness that, and I'm going to do a Neil Peart quote. Um, you know, Neil Peart had his own unique journey. Um, his his daughter Selena had died at the age of 19 in a, in an accident, car accident in Toronto, and his common law wife died 10 months later in 1998 of um, of stomach cancer. And the way he dealt with it is that a year to a day, I think, after his daughter's death, he went on the road. He traveled communed with nature, went within, and eventually, you know, was able to rebuild his life. But one of the things that he said about forgiveness that was, to me, was so profound um, is that he said, you know, there would be no peace for me, no life for me, until I learned to forgive the universe for what it had done, done to me, forgive others for being alive, and eventually forgive myself for being alive. And I thought that was a profound three-pronged I realized that in some way to embrace the universe, maybe subconsciously or consciously, I had to forgive it first, you know, for what it for what it had done to me. And then I had to forgive myself for being alive and eventually forgive others for for being alive. Because, you know, in early grief, I went through, wait a minute, wait a minute, why, you know, you, know, you go through value judgments, I think, for lack of a better way to put this. So why is this person who seems to be not living a life of integrity, why is that person still alive and my daughter is dead? You know, it's like I did everything right. I thought I did everything right, yet 
you know, God doesn't pick and choose. You know, this, this, yeah, he doesn't pick and choose. I mean, this, I learned that. Um, and for a reason that I probably will not understand until I, I walk on into this life and, and uh, going to the afterlife, uh, I've been, I've been chosen to walk this path. I've been, I've been walking this path, but I kind of figure if I'm going to walk this path, I'm going to, I'm going to walk it to the best of my ability with honor and integrity and, and help others in spite of the, of, of what has happened. And that's my cat, Zoe, by the way, she decided to join me, to join the, um, um, do you have anything to say, Zoe? No, apparently not. She's a good listener, though. That's all right. It matches my kids. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Well, yeah, she's, if I don't pay attention to her for like a half hour, she's got to come up and say what I'm doing, so. Can I just make a comment about both the cat and the children in the background or foreground? That That's life. That's the metaphor. Everything mm -hmm. goes on. And one of the things that surprised me the day after my husband died, and your story was so moving. Thank you so much. You're welcome, um, Judith. Thank you for listening. Oh, it was very, very moving. Is that the sun came out, the traffic still went, people still went to work. And I thought, you can't. My life has stopped. Why are you all still going? And so the fact that the cats wandered into the foreground and the children have been moving around in your background, Jenny, um, actually made the story more powerful because life will go on. And to quote Camus from um, one of his fantastic novels, you know, the in amazing indifference of the universe to our personal lives, you know, just life keeps moving forward whether we join the train on the journey or decide ourselves in stupidity or grief to get off. And your story, uh, Dave, was very, very moving because I felt your humanity and your compassion. And I think that's part of it. The more humane you are, the more empathetic, the mm -hmm. probably the stronger you feel it. You know, mm -hmm. people, and you know, you watch documentaries on on Germany and the SS and what Hitler asked his men to do, and the the callousness. Um, just an episode the other day, the callousness with which they got rid of their own um, hierarchy, who they thought might be uh, a fifth column, um, was completely indifferent to life. And one thing the three of us and people like us share is that we care and therefore mm -hmm. we're going to feel pain in a way that people who are deprived of that wonderful emotion of empathy and sympathy and mm -hmm. depth um, don't even know what they're missing if they, yeah. if they don't care. And you know that you know, those are those are those are great points Judith great observations the other thing that sparked in me is that a lot of times in Carl Jung was a famous psychologist, I think, who was in the Freudian school of psychoanalysis, but he broke away and he developed some very brilliant theories about dreams, archetypes. Um, and also he talked about the shadow element. And he said, the shadow is the person that you would rather not be. And he talked about the shadow being um, those parts of ourselves that we've either, we've either disowned or disavowed because of perceptions that they were were not good for our growth. So what I have learned is that 
there is a gift in sadness. Sadness, the sadness can lead to profound introspection. It can lead to profound compassion and anger. As long as anger isn't destructive, anger can give you the energy to set a boundary that you need to accept. Um, you know, confusion is gives you an opportunity to figure out what you want. Um, but you know, the, but it's embracing all that's a part of us that's going to help us get through. And grief, you got to make. I, to me, I needed to make friends with my sadness. I needed to make friends with my anger. I needed to make friends with my feelings of of um, inadequacy because I because of my perceptions that I didn't do enough to protect my daughter from her death. So I had to make friends with all of it, and then say, okay, what is the what is the 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 yin of that yang? What is it? Can I can I take from this that I can integrate now moving forward? So it's it allowed me to realize that any part of our grief experience is 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 something that can can be in service to us if we let it. But in early grief, it's difficult for that to happen because it's grief is so self-absorbing in the beginning, where we're so consumed with our own emotions, the changes that it's it's made to us physically and psychologically, and just trying to get through the day-to-day -day of survival and trying to just, you know, we can't, it, it's very difficult to begin to, to kind of entertain a different a different perspective that will help us get through that. But I've always, I, one of the things I tell people is we've got to wallow in the muck before we can wallow through it. And, you know, we have to allow that, that pain to engulf us. We have to, and, you know, and, uh, and allow it in some way to teach us. And we could try to suppress it, but it's it's just gonna keep coming back. So we it, we kind of, we kind of, you know, like I said earlier, I just kind of learned to, okay, this is an, another companion in my life. You know, this is something that I now need to, to learn to integrate and to learn from, so. Beautiful. I'm glad you brought up the, um, the yin and the yang again. Because when you said the yin and the, the mosaic of the yin and the yang, that really yep. struck me. Um, so I'm glad to see that we're circling back around to that concept. Mm -hmm. um, so for people who are in, the grief journey has different stages. There's early grief, there's middle grief, there's later grief. What would you say, um, can you give us some uh, like one piece of, of advice for each of those sections? Well, early grief in many ways is about survival initially. And I think many of us, I think if you take a look at the individuals who, you know, and survival is, is, the, is I think the, the forerunner to developing resilience. So in early grief, my belief, my, my advice would be be gentle with yourself understand that grief is a marathon, it's not a sprint, um, and that it's going to take as long as it's going to take to go from the raw pain of grief to a point where you have, you know, you have embraced, embraced life again, um, where you are, are willing to embrace a purposeful life in honor of your loved one and with your loved one. Um, I was talking to a grief bereavement facilitator in early grief, in my early grief, and she said it's usually the average is about for, for individuals to accept their plight, their circumstances is about three to five years. 
to go from that raw pain of, of grief to acceptance and, and commitment to living a life of purpose in spite of what's happened. I tell individuals, I suggest individuals, don't get caught up in time frames. It's going to take as long as it's going to take. So for some people, it may take less than two years, depending on what type of supports or the previous experiences with grief. Others, it may take longer, but it's all good. As long as there is movement, people are going to progress at their own pace. So as long as there is movement and they're not stuck, that's all that matters. Um, a lot of times, I think many in society get hooked on these time frames. Um, like, you know, you'll hear, um, you know, when Kubler-Rasha stages of grief came out, it was that they were designed primarily to give terminally ill individuals a kind of end-of-life vocabulary and allow them to provide a voice to their experience. But then every many in society extrapolated that, that this is how we grieve. And that, but we don't grieve in predefined steps. We don't go from denial one minute to anger the next. It doesn't progress. It's more circular. I kind of tell my students, it goes like this. These are the stages of grief that just kind of will run into each other and just one big circular, um, you know, circular event. And um, so that's that's the, the, you know, the, the, one of the pieces of advice is that be gentle with yourself and realize that it's going to take as long as it's going to take. If there's movement, don't be caught up in time frames. Um, you know, with that. Um, as far as middle grief, that was for me. That was, um, and, and also I would tell individuals in early grief: read as much as you can that you're capable of reading, because our concentration in early grief tends to be uh, limited. So read to the extent that you can read. Pick up on other people's stories, whether it's in short articles. Um, also find a support group that um, will support your connection to your loved one and, and is specific to the loss that you've, you've experienced. So if it's a death of a child, find a bereaved parent support group. Or if it's a sibling, find a bereaved sibling support group. Get with people who understand and will support you and who are in varying stages of their own grief because you can learn from people who are farther along than you. Um, so that So that is... And as far as later grief, realize that um, the pain, the raw pain of grief will surface anytime, which means our grief can be lifelong. Our grieving process, grieving can be lifelong, but it's not, it's not necessarily something that to be avoided. Um, whenever I experience the pain or yearning of missing my daughter, it also tells me I'm alive. And it tells me that um, I can experience that kind of emotion. I can experience that kind of empathy. I, I will shed tears when somebody else tells me their story. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that because that, you know, that is to me the, what bonds us, you know, it builds bridges, you know, between us, you know, so that we, and, and advanced empathy is a great thing, you know, that where we can shed a tear, where we can cry with somebody, um, where we can, we can empathize, where we can show emotion and, if anything, my journey has taught me in 18 years that I've been able to do that more readily than I could, than I did before. I, I'm able to, to see that because I, I understand the, the pain of the, the, um, the, worst, you know, the worst possible loss for a parent. Um, so I don't know if that answered your question, Jenny. I kind of went all, I made it in Judith. I don't know, because I kind of went off on an unplanned or a planned tangent, as I like to tell my students. So. Um, so I hope that answered that a little bit. Um, 
The other thing I tell individuals, avoid medicating in early grief or, uh, you know, or otherwise suppressing it. Because, um, yeah, I mean, you can medicate it, you can suppress it, but it's still going to be there. You know, you, you know, it's a matter of whatever comes, work through it, even if it's surviving through it, even if it's just, you know, do whatever you need to do, but don't, but don't medicate. Um, and uh, the other thing is that I'm a firm believer in signs. I tell, I tell individuals that, that, you know, I, I quote Maury Schwartz in the two, his book Tuesdays, in, in Mitch Albom's book Tuesdays with Maury, that ends a life, it doesn't end a relationship. Our loved ones, if we can embrace signs from our loved ones, if we are open to that, if we believe in that, but that our loved ones will will always make their presence known. Um, you know, if we if we're open to that, and to realize that death doesn't end that bond. Janine's always going to be my daughter. Um, you know, no matter where she is, and that's that's not going to change. And I also know that she has become. I, I have integrated. And I also tell parents, take the best parts of your loved one, the best qualities, and make them a part of yourself. You know, make them and in 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 some way there's in some in some way, in particular in the spiritual sense, the best part of our loved ones become the best parts of us. And then we move forward, you know, we become partners and we, we become partners in, in in helping others. I mean, I'm in my 60s. And I still haven't had a growth spurt yet. And I still feel like I have a lot of young energy. I feel like my in my head I'm 30. And I, I, I tell my wife, I can't believe I've lived this long this fast. But it's it's the fact that I've been infused with a lot of young energy around me with my students. And I also think because I've integrated the best parts of my daughter into my to my being, that I'm carrying a lot of her young energy as well, too, which is which is keeping me engaged in life. Beautiful. Uh, I was, if I may ask a question, um, the two boys, how did they support and or deal with their grief of loss of their sister? I, I think very differently, Judith. Um, you know, they, um, you know, they, they, they would talk about it amongst them and amongst, amongst them, they would support each other. Um, and siblings will usually do that. They, the, you know, one of the things that with sibling grief is that um, they are very conscious for a lot of different reasons of not making their their parents more upset. They may have heard, they didn't hear that messages from us, but a lot of siblings will say, you know, we'll, we'll say, we'll, we'll have been told that, you know, well, you got to be good for your parents. So, so in some way they may sit on their grief and not talk about it openly with their, you know, with us because they're worried of hurting us. So what we did is we told we told our boys, so look, you can talk about your, your daughter anytime, your, your your sister anytime with us. It's not going to bother us. We can share memories. But basically what I did is we, you know, we just gave them the, the room to grieve with each other. They would talk to their friends. They would talk to us when they needed to. It's just giving them and also on making them making known to them that their grief was just as as significant as a parent's grief. Because what tends to happen with siblings, and I'm an only child. But I'm only, but just from talking with other siblings, their grief may become disenfranchised because everybody's so worried about the parents that they forget to attend to the siblings. So when I'm, I'm talking to other therapists and they're doing family work, especially around their death, don't forget the siblings. Spend some time talking with them away from the parents. You know, talk with them to see what's going on with them. 
allow them to share their stories as well too, because the sibling bond is very unique and is very much different from the parent-child bond. It has its own unique set of issues. So, the, so it's making sure that everybody's grief is honored. We did that with our, 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 our boys. They worked through it in their own way with other resources and we empowered them to do that. Um, and I can say for a fact, and I'm not saying it because I am their father, they are two wonderful, they turned into be two wonderful, very compassionate young men. Um, they're both married and my oldest son has two children and my, my youngest one has one child. So I've got four grandchildren total. Beautiful, and thank my, you. And you're welcome. And Janine's daughter is very much, has very much the personality of, of, of my daughter. Um, we can call it genetics or maybe we can call it something else. And it's an uncanny because, um, you know, Janine was only around for 10 months. Right. So you, Jenny. So Judith, I hope that answered your question. Oh, very much so. It was sort of, you know, like you're not just going through this yourself, your wife and your children and your probably cousins and friends are all going through it in some ways with mm -hmm. you. And, and I'll tell you the thing with it. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no, no. The thing also that they were very patient with us because in early grief, I didn't have the energy to deal with my own grief, much less my partner's grief, my, my spouse's grief. Um, and they were very, in, in grief, as I mentioned early, can, in early grief can become very self-absorbing. And, uh, but they understood that and they gave me my space and um, they were very patient with me, um, even in my worst days. And for that, I'm, I'm, I'm eternally, I'll be eternally grateful to them. And, um, you know, we have, a, we have a great relationship now and, and it's just, uh, they're, they're just two very fine young men. I couldn't be, I couldn't be prouder of both, both of them. And I love them both very, very much, dearly. Okay. Wonderful. I so we're at the top of the hour. Um, thank you so much, Dave, for your sharing your story so openly and vulnerably and powerfully with us. And thank you, Judith, for chiming in and, and sharing your story, too. Yes. I just feel so privileged that I happened to meet Jenny yesterday, and this was happening with her first podcast today. And I'm really sorry that the other three or four people missed out on the most wonderful and sincere. I mean, I feel as if I know both of you almost like some of mine, well, not my best friends yet, but just the fact that we haven't, dwelled on the superficial but got to the essence of what life's about and life is about love loss happiness sadness and forgiveness and grief and joy and mm -hmm. you know your metaphor of the circular it's that you know I find as a teacher who has to suddenly tune in that you've just got to compartmentalize your life otherwise everything just becomes a bit messy and we still have to use that left brain to mm -hmm. engage in the world in a logical, sensible way. But I'm hoping with my journey with Jenny in the next eight to 10 or however long weeks we are on the first round, that um, the time I give to our journey will lead me into a more a happier, more peaceful time with what I'm dealing with now and it was the shock of something else that happened in July 
that has led me to this point. So every, I think everything happens for a purpose. Yeah, I've, I've learned that, that um, people that come into our life are meant to come in, in, in for a specific reason and at the time that they do. And I've learned that. Um, I've learned that and it's just something that I kind of, I, I stand in awe of when I, when it happens, I'm just thinking universe, this one, I thought you could, you could, you could, you've gotten to your threshold of amazement. You amaze me even more, you know, and it's just, it's just, um, and that's, um, that is what has kept me engaged is realizing. I think that once you realize, and I'm paraphrasing from one of my favorite books on the afterlife, the afterlife of Billy Fingers, is that once you realize that other dimensions exist, you don't look at life, death of yourself the same way again. And it's very true that once you realize that life is multidimensional, that we survive death, that we can still maintain bonds with our loved ones and it connect to their memory. When you realize that those other dimensions exist, you don't look at life and death of yourself the same way again. And that's part of the growth that occurs as a result of the challenges with loss. Now, I could go on for another hour, but I know we don't. We don't have any. We don't have enough time. But I could go on for another hour. So, just in terms of all the serendipity I've, I've experienced over the years, and the pieces with ancestral healing that occurred because of my willingness to to embrace a different, to not embrace, but to I don't like using that term embrace, but it comes out. But my will, I would say, my willingness to embrace a different perspective after Janine's death. Let's just say that after her death and yeah i wanted to say thank you thank you thank you thank you and well, thank you Jenny. well you judith thank you for waking up at seven o'clock in the morning and listening listening to our, our conversation I was, I was grateful and grateful to meet you and i hope our paths cross again someday me too next time i'll probably be dressed <clears throat> <laughs> okay it's a Hey, that's the thing. It doesn't matter. I mean, it's just like I, I tell my students when we're online, you know, eat, do whatever you want, wear your sweats. It doesn't matter to me. You know, it's just as long as you're present. Um, because it's not, it's not how, it's not what the, it's not the exterior of the package. It's what lies beyond that. Yeah, I've I've had many powerful meetings and connections in my pajamas. <laughs> yep. Yep. And me too. Wonderful. And for people who are going to be listening in later, where can we find you, Dave? Well, they can find me um, on, on my website. It's uh, www.bootsyandangel.com. Uh, Bootsy and Angel were two of my daughter's favorite cats. Um, and so we named the, we named the website after, after Bootsy and Angel. And they can also email me at um, bootsyandangel at gmail.com. They can also find me on Facebook. Um, I'm under David Roberts, and my profile picture is a picture of Janine when she was younger. And my cover photo is a picture of four, four crows flying in, in, in the sky. Wonderful. Thank yeah, you so much. Been, you're welcome. Okay, keep going, you keep know. going. Sure about no, no, this. I was just going to say, just crows have had a very significant meaning to me in my life. One of the other things I've embraced is, is the teachings of animal and nature, particularly through the through Native American cultures, so the teachings of Native American cultures over the years. And that's one perspective that has allowed me to, to experience some more synchronicity, serendipity, and has given me some more tools for great. 
just in terms of teachings of animals. And the biggest thing with crow, and I'll leave you with this, is from the Jamie Sams, is from Jamie Sams's book, Animal Cards, is honor the past as your teacher, at the present, honor the present as your creation, and honor the future as your inspiration. So it's about past, present, and future. All you know, and 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 working through grief involves us looking at a lot of you know is 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 that meld of past, present, and future. So crow medicine means means you know, is. Mm -hmm. I was just going to say it sounds like a whole subject for a second podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we we could we could talk about just signs and serendipity and everything else. I mean, I could I could go on and on and on because in eighteen years there isn't anything I haven't explored about grief. There's an afterlife signs after you know you're you know any, there isn't anything I haven't explored. So, and I I tell anybody that talks to me just ask me any question you want because I've explored that and. Um, you know, I don't mind answering those questions. Well, I'm kind of an open book at this point. That's the that's the 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 the, the upside of vulnerability is that we can become vulnerable and be open books and um, not necessarily worry about getting hurt. It's just that hey, this is me. This is my this is my story, and take the parts of it that you resonate with, the parts that you don't. That's okay because it's all about what we believe. So. And so I think that that's it for now, unless there's something else that comes into my head. So, but I think right now I'm good. I will leave you guys with that. Awesome. And I just wanted to wrap up the session, the um, experience with that concept of sharing your story and how powerfully we can learn from others and explore our own vulnerabilities and connect powerfully. And that's one of the big reasons why I started doing this series, started this series, was to bring us together, exploring humanity one heart at a time. Thank you, Jen. I was, I was honored to be your first guest. And, um, you know, I, I hope our paths continue to cross in the future. Likewise. I'll say bye-bye from Australia. And good morning. And good morning. And I'll, I'll say good evening from upstate New York. And what I'm, time is it? One o'clock. No, no. What time is it there? It's about it's about ten after five right now. Right. In the evening. Good afternoon. On Friday, Friday evening. So this is Saturday morning because I know you guys are. About We're so far ahead of you. <laughs> yeah, in many ways, Judith. In many ways, Judith. <laughs> I will acknowledge that. Bye-bye. Thank you, Jenny. Bye-bye. Wonderful. You're welcome. Thank you all.